It's pretty clear to us the most uh, memorable part of this text is obvious. Uh, There's a young guy named Eutychus. He dozes off during Paul's preaching, and as a result, he falls out of a three-story window and and dies. A little bit of a side note here, Eutychus, his name means lucky or fortunate, which is kind of ironic when you think about uh, what happens with a guy named Lucky. He unfortunately falls out of a window while asleep at church. Uh, Either way, this guy, Lucky, uh, fortunate, uh, falls asleep. He falls out of the window. He dies. Paul says, hey, he's going to be all right. Paul goes on preaching and, uh, and, and continues his sermon until daylight, until morning breaks, and, and then he does, in fact, come back to life, and they go home encouraged. And uh, that's usually the part of this text um, that, that folks spend a lot of time thinking about and making application from. Yet, yet as obvious as that part of the story is, we're not going to have a sermon today about the dangers of falling asleep in a sermon. Um, nor is the application going to be that six-hour sermons are what's missing in the church today. Um, instead, I want to I point you to what I believe is the key for us in this section of Acts, in these 12 verses, uh, John Stott in his commentary talks about the, the fact that there's a, there's a common word used in this passage, in this text. It's used three times in the Greek language, and, and we miss it because it's only twice translated the same. It actually shows up a third time, and, and we miss it in our English translations because it uses a different word here. Um, but it's key to our understanding and applying this text. You see the word used in verse 1, in verse 2, and in verse 12, and the word is uh, parakaleo in the Greek, and it, and it means this. In verse 1, you see it. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them. You get to verse 2, and it says, when he had gone through the regions, he had given them much encouragement. There's that word. And then verse 12, they took the youth, Eutychus, away alive, and they were not a little comforted. It's the same word there in the Greek, that word parakaleo, for encouraged, also can mean comforted. And so if this idea keeps coming up in this text, uh, three times in 12 verses, this word parakaleo, encouragement, comes up, then what is it that the Lord's trying to teach us in a text where we usually just end up talking about a guy who fell asleep and fell out of a window? Um, Though that is part of the story, I don't think it's the main thing that we are to take away from it. Uh, and here's, here's the thing, church family. I, I, I'm, I'm coming to you this morning making a case that from these 12 verses, what we see, it teaches us about encouragement. But specifically, how we as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in Christ, are to encourage one another through the body and what we do as a church. The normal rhythms of life as a church and what we do gathered how that brings encouragement to us as the body of Christ. And our hearts, I think we know this to be true of ourselves, if if we would be honest with ourselves for a moment, our hearts are fickle. Uh, Our hearts change all of the time. Sin creeps up on us daily. Discouragement jumps on us without a second's notice. And so knowing these spiritual realities, how can we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, fan the flame of our brother or sister's passion for Jesus? How do I increase a passion for Jesus in your life? And how do you do that the same in my life? How are we to encourage one another and spur one another on? I think, I think we see that all over this text this morning. And so I'll give you six. Um, looking at our text, six ways that we bring this kind of encouragement to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The first one is this. Uh, be an encourager. Be someone who would encourage even when your plans don't work out the way that you think they should. Continue with me. And looking at this text, the first six verses, uh, we find Paul 
and the mission team providing some encouragement, verse 1 and 2 in particular, even when their plans were not going their way. They end up in Troas because their plans had not went their way. We know that, that, that the plan was to go to Jerusalem for Passover. That was Paul's intentions. He wanted to be there for that most important of the religious feasts and festivals there in Jerusalem. And, and we know the details of this, not necessarily from Acts, though we had a hint of that last week. Um, we really begin to see this as you put his letters together with the book of Acts. So like the, the book of Romans, the book of 2 Corinthians that he's writing at this time in Acts. He's writing those letters, and so when you begin to study those letters alongside the book of Acts, you see he wanted to get to Jerusalem. His plan was to go there and be there for Passover, but also because he'd been collecting an offering. We've mentioned this a couple times. You see it more clearly in, uh, in his letters to the churches. He's been collecting an offering for saints in Jerusalem that had fallen on hard times, that were struggling, that were poor as a result of famine, and, and they'd been collecting this, this offering, and we're going to bring it to them. That's a very good thing. That's a good desire to encourage folks that are on hard times. But it didn't work out that way. In the midst of having a great plan, probably a plan that would honor the Lord, it didn't work out that way. He was faced with opposition. It shows us in our text again this morning that plots were made against him and he had to change his plans. And yet in the middle of all of that, those shifting plans, Paul is found encouraging believers in the places where he's ending up. Verses 1 and 2 in particular. Could it be, believer... Just think about this for a second. Could it be that, that God has purposed to bring you encouragement as you are, are actively encouraging others, as you're obedient to pour yourself into your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it that God has purposed that to bring you encouragement? Listen, the, 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 the harder things get and the more we're going through difficult things, look out for others that are uh, journeying through life on similar paths and speak life, speak joy to them, and watch how God will use your faithfulness to do that to encourage you, to lift your heart, to lift your spirit. Uh, mutual encouragement. Speaking the gospel to a brother or sister is life-giving. And the circumstances in our lives don't dictate the gospel's effectiveness to lift our hearts. The gospel does that. And it doesn't matter what we're, we're struggling through. He's purposed that we'd be that encouragement for one another. Some of the most joy-filled people I've ever seen are people that are going through some of the most difficult things I could ever imagine. And it's for this very reason that the gospel, the spirit of God living inside of us, produces that kind of encouragement when we then pour ourselves into other people to encourage them. So be that kind of person, even when your plans change. Second, second thing we observe here is surround yourself with people that will encourage you on your walk with Christ. In, in verse 4, and uh, we, we see seven men that Paul labored with. Uh, Caitlin did a great job of, of reading those names. I'm not even going to attempt to. She did such a great job. The way she did it was right. Paul mentions these guys that he's working, that he's co-laborers with. They come up here, but they also come up in Acts chapter 27, in, in Philippians chapter 2, in Ephesians chapter 6, in Colossians chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, these co-workers are coming up. Why is that? It's because he had valued their companionship. He valued their friendship, and they, they were with him in the laboring and, and with him in the ministry. And he, he's talking about them in his letters. He's expressing how thankful he was for them and their partnership in the gospel. Now, we won't spend a lot of time here this morning because this is pretty self-explanatory. It speaks for itself. But surround your, yourself, surround your life with people that are that kind of, of encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. It's hard. 
And the, 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 the church is, 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 is important. The family of God is important because we're meant to spur one another on, to, to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. And if the Bible's true, and what we fight against is, is not a physical battle, but it's, it's a spiritual battle, it's their spiritual warfare going on around us every day, then if, if the Bible's true concerning that, then we can't afford not to have these kind of people in our lives. That, that would encourage us, that would lift us when we're down, that would pour into us, that would challenge us when we're being disobedient. I say this all the time. You may be even tired of hearing me say it. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. And so if you find yourself in one of those places where you're discouraged, there, there, there's nothing, it seems, that's br- producing joy in your life, look around. Are you doing life with other believers that are meant to spur you on? I'm not just talking about church on Sunday. I'm talking about genuine community. Actually living life together where people know you and you know people. Uh, people know your, your sin struggles and your temptations because you've been open and vulnerable about that. You know how, how they're struggling and you're praying for them on a daily basis. They know how to pray for your marriage because you've talked through, here's what we're struggling with in our marriage. They, they know those sorts of things. They know the intimate details about your walk with Jesus. They're encouraging you on that difficult journey. Surround yourself with those kind of people. Be open and vulnerable to having those kind of relationships. And then take a note from Paul here and tell them you're thankful for him uh, or them. Uh, that's, what, that's what Paul's doing in these letters. He's not a softy. He's not a sissy because he's telling them how much he appreciates their friendship. They show up in all of these letters because Paul said, Hey, I'm thankful for you, brothers, that, that we're laboring together in gospel ministry together. He's quick to tell them how thankful he is. And, 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 and we should be too. That doesn't make us weak or soft. One more quick observation we see about Paul and his, and his friendships here, this partnership in the gospel. And note that these close relationships were forged as they served together, right? That's what's creating some of the closest relationships you'll ever have will come as you labor together in, in ministry with folks, doing the, the work of the ministry together, serving together, uh, serving your church family together, serving the community together, sharing the gospel together. I think Folks that have served in the military, they get this. Like if you've actually went and, and fought for our country in, in the armed forces, you get this. Those folks that you've literally battled with, stood alongside in battle, there's a relationship, a bond that's created that's unexplainable to anyone that, that hasn't experienced that. I think folks that, that serve on, on mission trips together, they would, they would be able to, to articulate something like that as well. You've witnessed together. You've won someone to Christ together. There are some relationships that are forged in those types of, of events and scenarios that are unbreakable, deep and lasting, because you've labored together in gospel ministry. And so if you sit here today and you think, man, I, I, don't, I don't really have those kinds of deep Christian friendships that are spurring me on in Christ, well, then ask yourself the next question. When's the last time that you sacrificed comforts or finances or time so that you could go and serve and be on mission with other believers in your church? And I, think, I think you'll see a correlation there. Those folks that articulate those kind of relationships, I have those kind of relationships in this body of Christ, are the folks that are doing that. They're forging those relationships together in the, in the trenches. Verse 6, as we continue through the text, it says, we sailed away from Philippi after, days, after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came uh, to them at Troas. So verse 6 is sort of a, a travel log. Catches us up in where they're at and how they're getting there and where they're going. 
The remainder of our text will focus on their time in Troas. And so verse 6 is sort of the connector. It gets us to Troas. But I want to give you a little bit of background here um, on, on Troas because it's important. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here, but don't get bogged down. Don't turn off and, 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 and key out right now. This is, this is important background for what's going on, and I'll show you why in a minute. If you remember, this is not the first time that Paul's been in Troas. Um, he, he went there on his second missionary journey. If you remember back in our study through Acts, Paul desired to go up to Bithynia. And, and the Holy Spirit says no, stops him. And so he travels up, to, up north and ends up in Troas. And it was in Troas where Paul had the Macedonian vision, right? Do you remember that? The, the man from Macedonia shows up in his vision and says, hey, come and help us. And this was Paul's way of knowing, hey, God's calling me to Europe. And Paul goes to Europe. This is also in Troas where Paul meets Luke. If you remember back in our study, uh, there's a shift that takes place where you see these us and we statements that begin in Acts. It shows us that Luke, the writer of Acts, is now a part of the team. He's not just retelling the story from an eyewitness account. He is the eyewitness. And so he talks about what we did and, and us and our journey. It shows us that he's there with them. But, so Troas is an important place for those couple reasons. But this is not the only time that Paul shows up in Troas. Paul left Ephesus and he goes back to Troas. And here's, here's what we find. We don't have this from Acts, from our study of Acts. We don't have these details. They just, we're not given them. But if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you learn about this second trip, this unknown trip to Troas. And here's what we find out. And I promise this has a point, so bear with me. I'm, I'm going I'm to circle back in a minute and tell you why this is important. If 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, you can turn over there with me if you'd like, or you can listen as I read. Paul is writing back to the church in Corinth, and he's telling about a trip to Troas, which is not the first one where he has the Macedonian vision, and it's not the second one where Eutychus falls asleep and, and dies. There's a second trip. Listen, listen to what he says. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit would not rest because I, I did not find my brother Titus there. And so I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. So let me summarize a bit and connect some dots for you. Paul writes the harsh letter to the Corinthians. This is not 1 Corinthians. This is not 2 Corinthians. It's a, another letter that we don't have in our Bible. It's just known as the, the harsh letter. And it's, it's called the harsh letter because he's kind of harsh in it. He's telling them about their sins and he's pointing out their failures and he's, being, uh, he's, he's handling discipline and he's chastising for sin. And it's, it's a pretty strongly worded letter. We we don't have it, so we can't read it, but we hear talk about it. We hear it referenced. And the plan was for Titus to bring this letter to the Corinthian church and so that their sins could be confronted, and then Titus and Paul were supposed to meet back up in Troas. So that's the second trip to, to Troas. Paul gets to Troas, and Titus is not there. Where's, where's Titus? He's worried about the Corinthian church. He's worried about how they'll receive this letter, and his heart is so troubled that he doesn't stay with the people of Troas very long. He goes on to Macedonia where he meets Titus, and then he, he hears that they received the word well. The Corinthian church heard the rebuke, and they repented, and they turned to the Lord. Praise God, right? That's why we have 2 Corinthians where he's, he's thankful. He's rejoicing in their repentance. They took the harsh letter well, and they turned to the Lord. But here's what it says. He stays only a short time in Troas, the second time, while he's waiting on Titus. And it was there that he was supposed to meet Titus, but he didn't. And here's my point. What was Titus, in the, in the absence of Titus, and why he was in Troas this short time, uh, Paul says that he was only with believers there. Uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 12 of 2 Corinthians. He said, a door was opened to me uh, for the Lord. And, and so what he's saying is, God was saving people. 
God was doing a work in Troas. God was opening a door there. The, the church was being formed. The church was growing and increasing. But I couldn't linger because I was so worried about the Corinthian church. So even though God's saving folks, the church is forming and growing, he was there only a short time. Here's the question that I'm getting to. What was it in that second trip to Troas that Paul was teaching these believers in Troas, even though he only had a few hours with them, right? He's not staying months or years like he has in other places. He's only there a few hours, and he's worried about the Corinthian church, and so he goes to Macedonia and meets Titus. What was, what was he teaching in that time? Because you can imagine, if he's only there a few hours, he's going to focus on the core stuff, the most fundamental things that they should be doing as a church, the most important things for them as new Christians, as baby Christians, what they should be doing. You have to assume in that short time he's doing the, the main things with them. You say, well, Matt, how, how are we supposed to know the answer to that question? We don't even have a reference to Troas, this second trip to Troas in Acts. How are we supposed to know what he was teaching them? Well, because in our text today, Paul is back in Troas for his third trip there. And let's observe what they're doing. Because you can bet whatever the church is doing in Troas when Paul goes back the third time, they're doing that because Paul had instructed them to do that when he was there the second time, which is the one we learned about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And so I'll note four things this morning. And again, still this idea of, of how we're encouraged as the body of Christ, how we spur one another on as the body of Christ, four things that this church in Troas was doing, instinctively doing because they'd been instructed by Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit to be doing these things. So our third point, we're encouraged as we gather weekly to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. Look at verse 7. Paul gets back to Troas, hadn't seen these folks since he left to go to Macedonia to meet Titus, and here's what it said. On the first day of the week when we gathered together. This, this first part is, is a clear reference to the Christian church gathering for worship on Sunday. There are other references in Acts and in, in Paul's letters that, that, that are more ambiguous, that, that suggest to us that's what the practice was. But this is key for us to understand because some will claim that this, this didn't happen. This was a teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. This didn't happen until the patristic era or the medieval era. No, as early as Paul's second missionary journey, we have clear evidence that the church was meeting on Sunday every week for worship, to, res, to worship the resurrected Christ, to worship the one who conquered death. And this went against traditions and culture. I mean, remember, this is very early on. The Jewish movement and the Christian movement were still, by some, seen as, as the same movement. Still confusing to a lot of folks. And yet, the, the Jews met on Saturday, the Sabbath. And, Jews, and Christians began to meet on Sunday. Why would they do that? Because Jesus had risen from the dead. And that's what they were meeting to celebrate. That's what they were there to worship and to rejoice in, that Jesus had conquered death. And that's the same reason that we meet on Sundays today. That's why we're gathered here today. No matter what else we may be doing, that's what we're doing. We're, we're celebrating Jesus has risen from the dead. He has conquered the grave. He's conquered our greatest enemy, death itself. And so they gathered on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection. 2,000 years later, we're doing the same thing. We're still doing that today. So some application for us here at church. Just really practical. Really practical from this text. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, I don't need the church. You're sharing the gospel with folks in the community. I don't need the church. I don't need organized religion. I don't need to go to a church building to worship Jesus. I can worship him right out in the middle of his creation. On my deer stand or on the side of the, the, the pond levee as I'm fishing. I can worship Jesus right there. But here's my problem with statements like that. When you make statements like that, it sounds really spiritual, right? Like, I can worship Jesus wherever. I don't need to go to the church. I don't need to be in a church building. But how much are you really ascribing? How much worth 
Are you really ascribing to Jesus? Because that's what worship means. He's worth something. How much worth are you really ascribing to Jesus when you're saying, I won't give up that, that two hours to come and intentionally spend time gathering with other believers to worship the name of Christ? I mean, maybe, maybe you do. Maybe you do think about Jesus in the boat or in the deer stand or, or whatever else may keep you away from God's house. Maybe you do think about Jesus. But was he not worth the two hours that you gave up or even the, the trophy buck that you killed? Was he not worth giving up that thing to go and meet with other believers to ascribe worth to him, to worship as he's commanded us to do and as the church has been doing for 2,000 years? Meet weekly with your church family to worship King Jesus. That's the takeaway. That's the tweet. <laughs> Meet with your church family weekly. That's what this church was doing. And, and I, here's the, I, I know it's a different culture. Like we, we have to take that into account. We're a transient people. We travel all the time away on business. Maybe we go visit family that live in another state or vacations. We're just a, a, a more traveling group of people as a culture today. But what about when we're away from Poplar Spring? Is there, is there a desire? Is there, a, is there an effort to go and gather with believers, maybe in a d- different city or wherever your family is or wherever you're on vacation? Or is it just, well, I guess I get a pass this week because we're on vacation. Like, are, are we really there? Is our affection for Christ, is our celebration of his resurrection really to the place where we're saying we want vaca- to take a vacation from that? Are we too busy for that because of our circumstances? Our culture is so quick to let anything come before our commitment to gather. Like anything. Like even believers. Like I'll be at church unless literally anything else comes up. <laughs> Whatever that thing, a kid's soccer game, dance recitals. I got, I got, a, I got a, this thing I've got to do this weekend in the yard. Or I've got a baseball tournament my kids playing in. Like what is that teaching our kids about our commitment to Christ when literally anything else gets priority over meeting to worship? Believe it or not, there was a time, there was a day, and I'm not that old, but I can remember this day, when leagues wouldn't even even plan and schedule events on Wednesday nights because churches met for things, midweek, prayer services, Bible studies. And today, it swung so far the opposite direction than even Sunday. The Lord's Day is fair game. We can schedule things right on through Sunday because folks are not committed What does that say about us as a church when that's our commitment level, to rejoice and celebrate the one who's conquered death? Here's the thing. Our weekly worship gathering is for Jesus. We gather to praise him, worship him, glorify him as his bride. All right. So what does that say to him when his bride is so quick to forfeit that? But here's the other thing. Just because it's primarily for him, it's primarily about Christ, it's primarily worshiping King Jesus. I said there's the third point here, that we're encouraged as we gather we see that that happens as well. There's a, a vertical and horizontal dimension to our meetings. Every believer needs to be encouraged uh, and, and receive encouragement that comes from King Jesus. That's the vertical dimension. But every believer also needs encouragement that comes from the king's people. That's the horizontal dimension. That as we gather, we encourage one another. This is Hebrews 10, 24. Paul, I mean, in, in Hebrews 10, 24, the writer of, of Hebrews says, Let us consider how we stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. What does that mean? It means that every time we gather, every time we come together as the body of Christ, you have a role to play. You have a job on Sunday mornings. And, and you say, well, Matt, I'm not on any committees. I'm not on any teams. 
I'm, I'm, not, I'm not serving in any capacity on Sunday mornings. What do you mean I have a role to play? Every Sunday morning when you gather, when we gather, we're not gathering so that you can be entertained or so that you can enjoy a certain style of music or anything like that. We're gathered so that you can be encouraged, receive encouragement, and encourage the body. Stir one another up. Stir one another up. Be encouraged. That's what Hebrews 10.24 says. And so for the good of your own soul and for the good of souls of your brothers and sisters, protect, prioritize the corporate worship gathering. We saw that this church in Troas was doing that. They valued it. They prioritized it. It was just commonplace, verse 7, that as they met weekly. All right? Second thing, or actually the fourth point, second thing we note about this church in Troas, but our fourth point for the mor- this morning, we're encouraged as we worship around the Lord's table. Continue reading verse 7. It says, on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread. Now, there's a possibility that this is referring just to a, a common meal that they would share together. But I don't think so. I think when you consider 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and the instructions there from Paul that in the context of the gathered body that you're to do this in remembrance of Christ, this is a clear technical reference to the communion, to communion that they would celebrate the Lord's table. And so we ought to stop and consider. How is it that the Lord has purposed communion, the Lord's Supper, to be that sort of encouragement, to be that routine thing that we're to do to to stir one another up? It seems pretty clear to me in the context of of this text that it happened weekly, as often as they gathered. Why? Because God was doing something. It wasn't just about them doing something, remembering, actively remembering, though that is part of it, that in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit's doing something in their hearts and lives through it, through their celebration of communion. Now, we may struggle with that, right? We're, we're, we're in a tradition of churches, a denomination of churches that traditionally has said, we'll do communion four times a year, right? Once a quarter or on special holidays, we'll do communion. And the argument goes for that line of thinking, well, we don't want it to, you know, to become routine. We want to make it special, right? And, 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 the, and the pushback on that argument would be eating food, right? We, we don't just eat every now and then because we want it to be special, Right? You eat because you're hungry, right? And that, that brings you nourishment. And so it's silly. These practices that these believers were doing, they were doing weekly because they were hungry for something. They were hungry for the Lord. They were hungry to reflect on his resurrection. They were hungry for the encouragement that God brought them through it. And so God may be working among us in communion. Why wouldn't we do it more often? Why wouldn't we do it more intentionally, with more reflection, with, with, uh, with our hearts bent towards the Lord? And you, you see that, that that argument doesn't hold up from the other side, right? We preach every week. We sing every week. We pray every week. Why would we also not do communion more frequently? If the Lord is doing something in it, it's meant for us to do. Maybe you're not convinced of the encouragement that the communion that the Lord's table brings us uh, because you've never seen it. Here's a couple things. I'm going to give us a couple thoughts real quickly in how the Lord works through communion, through the Lord's table, to encourage us as believers. The first one's this. We're encouraged as we remember uh, what communion means for us as former enemies of God, right? Think about the, the text here. Paul has the privilege here of celebrating the Lord's table, breaking bread, of, of, of doing the Lord's Supper, of, of doing communion with individuals that have not been Christians for very long. So can you imagine the joy in Paul's heart as he's watching these recently pagan people now celebrate the broken body and shed blood of Christ through communion? John Patton was a missionary to a cannibalistic group of islanders in the late 1800s. 
And uh, he, he, he labored for many years with difficulty and, and with seasons of trials and, and incredible hardship. And after the first communion that he celebrated among those cannibalistic people, this is what he said. For years we had toiled and prayed and taught for this. At the moment when I put the bread and wine into those dark hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, but now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love, I had a foretaste of the joy and glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss until I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus himself. That's what we see in communion. That's what we, now, we may not be cannibals, but we were nonetheless enemies of God, running after sin, running straight to hell, and God saved us. And so every time we come to this table, that's what you're witnessing. Enemies of God that have been made God's children because of the broken body and shed blood of Christ. May we never get over the gospel. Do you, do you see the encouragement that's supposed to produce in you? A second way we're encouraged through communion, through the table of the Lord, is by seeing the power of God in the Lord's Supper, right? We're not to see the elements, the, 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 the bread and the, the cup, literally transforming into the literal body and blood of Jesus like the, the Roman Catholic Church would teach. That's not what I'm suggesting. But we should also not minimize the experience of coming to the Lord's table, that as we come repentantly, as we come prayerfully, as we come gratefully and joyfully, as we're doing this, we'll find that the Lord's Supper is a powerful proclamation of the gospel to our eyes. As we preach sermons, it's, it's sermons, it's the gospel to our ears. As we come to the table, it's a, it's a sermon to our eyes that we're seeing Christ's body broken and bloodshed for us. And what a proclamation that is. The second way I think that it, that it does this is that the Lord is, is powerfully knitting together a community of faith that their unity is the gospel, Right? I don't think we get this as, as clearly as they did in their culture. But in biblical times, the table and your place at the table demonstrated your, your priority, your status, your power, your wealth, your influence, right? So the head of the table is the place of authority. The right and left hand are also places of, of significance and authority. You get to 1 Corinthians. Paul says this. He's, he's, in, he's rebuking these folks about their, their place at the table, the Lord's table, and the, the haves and the have-nots were receiving differently. They were, be given, they were given different. And the, the, the point is that at the Lord's table, at communion, everything's level. We were all sinners bought by the grace of God. And so your skin color doesn't matter. Where you grew up doesn't matter. What your paycheck looks like doesn't matter. The, the unity that we have celebrating the table of the Lord is that Jesus has paid for our sins. All of our, our sins. We're one. And that's, what the, that's the unity that we have. That's a powerful statement to us. That's meant to encourage our hearts as we celebrate the Lord's table. Well, fifth thing, as we continue through the text. Fifth thing, we're encouraged as we hear the word of God taught and preached. We're encouraged as we hear the word of God taught and preached. Now, verse 9 through 12, we have the account of, of Eutychus. I don't want us to be too hard on old Eutychus, though, man. He, he's a young guy. Uh, he worked all day. Because to be a young guy in that culture meant that you worked all day. Uh, boy, the times have changed. He's a young man. He's labored all day. He's exhausted from laboring in the, the, the Middle Eastern sun. He's sitting in the window trying to get some fresh air, trying to stay awake. He's trying to be engaged. It's just so difficult. His head gets heavy. His eyes start to shut. He just can't stay in there. Literally. <laughs> falls asleep. Falls out the window. 
But what I would rather us do than, than talk about Eutychus is see Eutychus and the rest of these believers that were also doing the same thing, uh, working all day, then coming to hear the preached word. I want us to see the, the willingness, the commitment that they had to gather to hear the word preached and taught. Look at verse 7 and verse 9. Show us that Paul, the word that, that, that Luke uses, he kept on talking. He just kept on talking until midnight after these folks had been working all day. And then even after Eutychus falls out of the window, is dead, Paul says, oh, he's going to be all right. He goes back and continues preaching until daylight <laughs> or until they have to go to work again. <laughs> so from the time they got off work to the time they have to go back to work, they're sitting and hearing the, the preached and taught word of God. Now, I'm not suggesting, I've already said that we have six, seven, eight-hour sermons. I don't want to preach that long, and I know you don't want to listen to me that long. Uh, you would get up and walk out, and I, I would too. But what we do see, I want us to take from this, is a commitment to hear God's Word and to value it, to prioritize it. Not just our meeting together and, and the encouragement that comes from us physically being in a room together, but the encouragement that comes from our commitment to the Word of God. Even when our bodies are exhausted, or we're tired, we've been up all night, we're physically just spent. And Eutychus would say amen to that. And so I want to offer some really practical application here, just really, really practical stuff that we should think through, maybe some instruction for us, some helps for us in how we listen to the taught or preached word of God. Now, I'd love to take credit for this list, but this comes from several different places, uh, different commentaries. Sandy Wilson, Tony Morita have, have done lists like this, and so I'm, I'm borrowing from there. So if this is helpful, these guys are to be noted for that. But here, here are eight. I'll give you eight, right? Eight thoughts, application for our hearing of the Word of God. So what you're doing actively right now, here's some thoughts. Number one, listen humbly, all right? Listen humbly. Realize that you need the word of God. Not, not your neighbor sitting next to you. Don't listen, uh, you know, with a grudge in your heart like, ah, oh, you know, I've got to, I'm, I'm not there. That's not me that the word of God is being applied to. Don't have a spirit of arrogance. Don't let your familiarity with a passage be like, well, I've heard this. I understand this passage for myself. You know, don't let the preacher's pet peeves, right, or soapboxes be a hang up for you. Hear the word of God and humbly know that it's for you. Christ's word is, is meant for you. You need to have a humble spirit as you hear the word of God. Second, listen intently, right? Listen intently. Whatever you must do to stay engaged with the word of God, with the message, do it. If you need to say amen, say amen. If, that means, uh, if that's what it means to keep you trekking. If you need to sit near to the front so that you're not distracted, come sit near the front. If you need to take notes because writing would help you to engage, take notes. If you need to go to the restroom before the service, go to the restroom before the... It's, it's funny to me, right? Like this is an observation, preacher observation, right? That we can drink three soft drinks and sit through a three-hour ball game without ever having to go to the restroom. But three minutes into a sermon, we feel like our bladder is about to bust. Like, I don't know what that is. Like, I'm not, don't let Satan use your peanut-sized bladder to steal away the word of God that he's wanting to use in your heart, right? It's not worth it. Go before service. You can go immediately after, too. I'm not going to preach like Paul did for eight hours. Here's another one. Get plenty of rest, right? If we're going to listen to the word intently, you need to get plenty of rest on Saturday night. I don't know who to give credit for this statement. I've heard it several times, but Sunday morning is a Saturday night decision, right? So you hearing the word right now was a decision you made last night. If you stood up till midnight or 2 a.m., uh, you know, going through some Netflix shows, just binge watching your favorite 
You're not preparing your heart for Sunday. And so, so, so everything that we're doing on Saturday night is to help for Sunday morning. Fight the urge to fall asleep or check out mentally. Even if the preacher's boring. Even if the preacher's because you're not listening to the preacher. You're listening to God's word. You're hearing the, the word of God in the text of scripture. So engage. Third thing, listen biblically. Listen biblically. Use your mind to weigh in on what is taught and compare it with what you already know of God's word. So as you hear the word being taught from the Old Testament or from the New Testament, think about what, what do I know from the Old Testament that's, that's compared with this? What, how does this inform my understanding of where we're headed in the text? Think biblically. Listen biblically as you hear the word of God taught. Number four, listen personally. Right? Listen for yourself, not for the person ooh, who really needed to hear that. I'm so glad they're here today. They really needed to hear that, right? Listen personally. And then number five, listen communally, right? And this sounds contradictory, right? Listen communally. Listen for the good of your brothers and sisters. And even though that sounds contradictory, here's what I mean. In the preaching hour, when you're hearing the word of God, don't be thinking about the person next to you. Be thinking, how does this apply to me? How is the Lord changing me? What's he teaching me here? But in doing that, what you're really doing is listening for your brother or sister. Because the way that God's changing your heart is something that God may use for you to pour into them later. Because maybe they weren't listening to the word of God. And so even in listening for ourselves personally, it's for the benefit of us corporately. Number six, listen missionally. Do not merely be a receiver of the word, but be listening because you're going to be a conduit by which that word gets to someone else. Don't be a cul-de-sac for the word of God. Be a conduit that the word of God would come in you as it's headed to someone else. Listen to make disciples of all nations. Number seven, listen practically. Think about the ways that this text, that this word of God should change your behavior based upon what you're hearing, right? Everything in God's word is meant to change the way we think or the way we act. It's not just a history lesson. We're not just given history uh, details about what God did in the past. So here's, so here's the boots on the ground application here. Even if the pastor does a lousy job of making application, you apply it. He's given you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And so even if the, the pastor's application is a complete miss for you that day, as you're hearing the word of God and listening practically, let the Holy Spirit help you to apply it to your life, right? He's given us that. Number eight, listen gratefully. Listen gratefully. And what I mean here is be thankful that God speaks. He's not like God, the gods of other religions that are, are not gods at all, that are fake, that are idols, that have no voice that are dead, wood, stone. He's a living God, and he's given us his living word, and he speaks to us. Be grateful that he speaks. That's number five. We're encouraged as we hear the word of God taught and preached. Number six, and our last point this morning. Encouragement comes as we learn to observe the power of God working through his people. Encouragement comes as we look for, as we're observing the power of God working through his people. There's another important shift in this text that takes place uh, that we often miss in our English Bibles, and I'll show it to you. Look at verse 7. Both of these occasions that I'm going to point out to you had to do with Paul uh, in communication. He's speaking in some way, but here's the difference. On verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Now, that word talked in the Greek is dialegomai, right? Dialegomai. It sounds like a word that we use in English, right? Dialogue, right? It's meant to sound that way because that's what it is intending. 
The idea here, dialegami, is that it was a back and forth. It was a question and answer. There was some give and take. These people were in conversation together. Paul, with these believers in Troas, they were talking through the gospel. They were talking through the church. They were talking through faith. They were talking through how to walk with Christ. It was a conversation. Now look at verse 11. It says, And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them for a long time until daybreak. That's a different word in the Greek. That's the word homileo. It kind of sounds like another word we use in English, maybe not quite as often. Uh, Homily, a speech or a sermon. And so here's my point. When Paul starts speaking back in verse 7, it's a conversation. It's a give and take. It's It's a group activity. And even when the folks in the room had finished with the conversation, they didn't have anything else to say, they asked for Paul to continue to preach. And so he moves into a homily where he's preaching the word of God to them because they're still hungry for more of God's word. And so Paul comes back up from checking on Eutychus and he preaches till the sun comes up. He preaches till daylight. These people were there for it. And here's the thing. These same folks were just a short time ago pagans or Jews who did not see Jesus as the Messiah. Either way, they were lost. They were headed to hell. And and now they're they're up at, at, at midnight, up till daylight, hearing a sermon about Jesus. Friends, that's real transformation. That's what it looks like when Jesus comes and he changes everything inside of you. Friends, listen, we need to be together like we are this morning, like we are in growth groups or Sunday schools. We need to be together because I need to know what God's been doing in your life, what that transformation looks like what God's doing in your heart to make you a new creature. The power of God to work in your life might just be the very thing that God is using to give uh, me the the desire to fight for joy in my life. Do you see that? As I observe him working in your heart, it gives me encouragement to fight for joy in my heart as we watch God transform lives around us. So that's why we share our struggles. That's why we share our successes. That's why we share our our trials and our, our triumphs, all of it. Because in it, God is showing us, here's what my spirit is doing in your brother. Here's what my spirit is doing in your sister. But then watch how this passage ends. Verse 12. And they took the youth, that's Eutychus, they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. You may be here today and you don't believe in miracles. I'm sure there were folks there in Troas that didn't believe in miracles either. And it would go along with today, many liberal, even biblical scholars that don't believe in miracles today. And many of them, the liberal biblical scholars would say, well, he wasn't really dead. He was just sort of asleep. It kind of knocked him unconscious for a while. But here's the thing. Remember who's writing this? This guy named Luke. Remember what Luke's job was? He was a medical doctor. And so if anyone is qualified to make a call concerning whether somebody's alive or dead, it's Luke. And we've also seen Luke to be a very honest and careful historian, right? Well, that's what we've watched. Even, even in the good things and in the, in the disagreements and the, the, the feuding that's went on with the, the church and these missionaries, he just tells it like it is. And so if the boy's not dead, he wouldn't say he's dead. But he did say he was dead. And so, so Eutychus is graveyard dead. He's dead. And now, by the life-giving power of God, he's alive, <laughs> And here's here's where the rubber hits the road for us, church family. This was physically with Eutychus, but it happens spiritually with every person in this room that's born again. This is what it means to meet God in worship, that you were dead, but now you're alive. This is what it means to come together at the table of God and celebrate. You were dead, and now you're alive. This is what it means to meet Christ in the scriptures. You were dead, but now you're alive. This is what it means to come together with other believers in fellowship, to encourage one another with the transformation that's going on in your heart. You were dead, and now you're alive. 
by the life-giving power of God, by the transcending power of Christ, you were a dead person, and now you're alive. That's the encouragement that the gospel breathes in our heart as we come together as his people. This is a room full of dead people that are now alive. We've tasted life. We've seen the power of God in our hearts as he's taken our hearts and given us new desires, new loves, new affections. Be encouraged by your brothers and sisters in Christ. Those out there can't claim that. They're still walking dead people. They've not been made alive. And this is what we see in in the physical example of Eutychus, but also in the spiritual example of every person gathered in that room studying the word of God till the sun came up. Let's be that kind of person for one another. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for a room full of people right now that have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ and have passed from death to life. That just as Christ conquered death, so can we hope in the resurrection that is to come. That Christ bore our sin. And that by our our repentance, our turning from sin, and our faith in Christ, by the grace that's been given to us, we can be made sons and daughters, those who were once dead. So Father, we praise you for that. God, I pray this morning that you would give us supernatural encouragement as we come together as the body of Christ in all of these ways, in the preaching of your word, in the, in the, 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 the sacrament of, of communion, in, in our gathering to, to see lives transformed. In all these ways, God, that we would encourage one another even more as we see the day drawing near. And so, God, give us, give us hearts that are obedient. Give us hearts that are committed to Christ and his church. God, I specifically right now pray for every man in this room that as the leader of his home, as the husband, as the spiritual leader over his family, that you would bring conviction, that you would help him to see it's on him to lead his family in these ways. God, I pray that for my own heart as well. That you'd help us to be an encouragement to one another week in and week out as we journey through this life. Being made more like Christ until we get to see Christ face to face. I gotta pray for every believer in this room that's had a difficult week. That's went through trial and struggle, discouragement, depression, frustration at work or at home. God, I pray that we would just be real with one another this morning and that we would speak truth to one another and encourage one another in the gospel. That despite our circumstances, the gospel would produce a supernatural encouragement and joy that overflows into our hearts and our lives and to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we give you this time, Jesus. You work in in every heart in any, any way that you see fit. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.